0: Welcome to the South Crest Live Podcast. Today's podcast is a message presented by Dr. Eric Chaffin, singles pastor from South Crest Baptist Church. Good morning, church. Hey, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to specifically look at verses 5 through 8 this morning. But while you're Turning to 2 Timothy 4, let me tell you a story. It was February 2006, running back Jerome Bettis, affectionately known as the bus, grinned and declared to the world, I played this game to win the championship. I'm a champion, and I think the bus's last stop is right here. I'm the happiest person in the world. There's no more games left. And in front of a TV audience of tens of millions of people, and on a platform filled by the Super Bowl 40 champion Pittsburgh Steelers, the bus jubilantly hoisted high the Lombardi Trophy, the uh, symbol of football's crowning achievement. You see, the bus, Jerome Bettis, had the pleasure of not only going out as a champion— But also the joy of a view from the end zone, from the finish line of his playing career. Now let's contrast the bus with the Paul, if you will. Today's text finds Paul at the finish line of his life. But the setting is not exactly what you might have wanted for Paul, certainly not what we expect. It's the first century, somewhere around the mid to late 60s. Paul is writing the second epistle to Timothy during his second imprisonment, this time from a Roman dungeon, prisoner for the sake of the gospel. He's facing the capital charge of insurrection against the Roman government, and he is expecting a verdict of execution by Emperor Nero. Paul knew that the end of his life was immediately at hand. Now, there's something about a person's last words that we put stock in, something that catches our attention. And 2 Timothy was, in fact, the last epistle that Paul would ever write, the last words he would ever write. And so, it sort of reads like Paul's last will and testament. And in this letter, he is passing the gospel banner to Timothy. And in the passage leading up to our text today, he has just given Timothy this awesome charge to preach the gospel, to minister to a world that is lost. But church not only has this letter given Timothy viable counsel in his leadership of the church at Ephesus, but in writing it, Paul has actually given us some valuable applications for our lives as Christians today. So if you have the place there in 2 Timothy 4, read with me in verse 5. It says, but as for you, exercise self-control in everything endure hardship do the work of an evangelist fulfill your ministry for i am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time for my departure is close i have fought the good fight i have finished the race i've kept the faith There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved His appearing. Church, this morning I want us to focus on three practical points of counsel that we find from Paul's last will and testament, as it were, his letter to Timothy. Number one is this, run the course Run the course. I want you to look at the end of verse 5 there in verse 6. He says, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time for my departure is close, Paul says. Fulfill your ministry. Run your course. Folks, that's sound counsel both for Timothy back then and for us today. But what is my course Yeah, a lot of us are asking that question. How do I know what God is calling me to do? Well, he does reveal his will to us in a lot of different ways, but have you actually stopped to to ask him? When I was a young man, my young adult years, specifically my college years, I was this indecisive, meandering mess. I could not figure out what I was supposed to do with my life nor where I was supposed to be uh, it, was, it was not pretty. Uh, in college, I changed my major three times. Started out as a freshman as a church music major. I thought, yeah, I'll do church music. Um, yeah, after a year of that, I realized I did not have what it takes. So I thought, okay, I'll be a Bible major. And so I changed my major to Bible and made some significant headway there. But no, at some point, I decided, no, I need to be. An evangelism major. Yeah, that lasted about a semester. Finally, I realized, good grief, I'm a senior, and I still don't know what I'm supposed to do. I need to earn a degree and get out. So I finally settled on speech communication, but I couldn't decide what. I couldn't decide where. Transferring schools. It was just a a, a big mess. But here's the thing. I knew that I was called. I mean, from the moment I was 16 years old. From that time, I knew I was called to be a minister of the gospel. I knew that I was called to vocational ministry. just didn't know what form. Well, you know why I didn't know? I didn't ask. I did not get on my knees and continually, consistently, fervently seek the heart of God and say, God, what do you want me to do? Oh, and get this, I was also too dumb to realize that when God does answer, when he reveals that calling, it's not necessarily a subjective thing. I mean, it doesn't have to be this, this grand mystical experience where God drops this ginormous neon sign down from heaven with arrows pointing to it that says, Eric, do this. Not to say that that God can't speak in dreams and visions. I mean, he still can. He speaks to us in a lot of ways. But oftentimes, it's just a simple matter of taking inventory of all of your gifts, talents, and abilities and saying, okay, God, how can I use all of these gifts and talents to make the maximum impact for your kingdom? We struggle with trying to figure out what to do with our lives. Max Licato actually addressed this in a book about 15 or so years ago. He wrote this book called The Cure for the Common Life. And in The Cure for the Common Life, he says if you want to be living life in your sweet spot, there's three things you need to do. Number one, find out what you're good at. Number two, use it to make a big deal out of God. And then number three, do it every day. Pretty simple. Pretty simple find out what you're good at, use it to make a big deal out of God, do it every day, and you will find yourself living life in your sweet spot. Now, church, not everybody's called to be a Baptist preacher, but we are all called. We're called to be ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ right where we are. So whether you are a banker, a musician, a hairstylist, a a medical equipment salesman, a grocer, a teacher, Use that to make a big deal out of God and do it every day. Run your course. Now, I want you to notice a couple things that Paul is talking about here in verse 6. First of all, he talks about the drink offering. What is a drink offering? Well, he's actually making a reference to an Old Testament ritual. It was part of the observance of the Day of Atonement. And according to the Levitical law... When a worshiper's burnt offering was consumed by fire, then the worshiper would often pour uh, a drink offering of wine upon it. And the wine poured on the burning coals would create a sweet aroma. Of course, the symbolism of that act actually points us forward from Leviticus to the Gospels. How we see Jesus has poured himself out, his very life on the cross for us. But Paul is using the same symbolism here as he is declaring that his very life has been an offering completely poured out to the Lord in sweet service to God. As I pondered what Paul was saying there, I thought to myself, what must it look like to see a person whose life is completely poured out in service to a cause? I mean, besides Paul. I began to think about that. I thought, okay, okay, Mother Teresa, that's a good example. Um, Billy Graham spent his entire adult life in evangelism. I thought of great missionaries like Adoniram Judson, Lottie Moon. But you know what? The Baptist preacher me kept coming back to Spurgeon. You see, to deal with the needs of ministry in London, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, established a number of charitable organizations, 66 parachurch ministries in all. Among these many, many ministries were two orphanages, a book fund, clothing drive, numerous almshouses, that terminology is kind of foreign to us. Think uh, 19th century Habitat for Humanity. Uh, A retirement home, nursing homes, Sunday schools for children, Sunday schools for the blind, ministries to fallen women, ministries to policemen, a theological college, and much, much more. Did you know Spurgeon also built a massive publishing ministry? In fact, by 1892, Charles Haddon Spurgeon had published more words in the English language than any other Christian in history. Through preaching and through print, it is estimated that through the course of his life, Charles Haddon Spurgeon shared the gospel with 10 million people. Think about that. Late 19th century, there's there's no television, there's no radio, there's no internet, satellite. 10 million people. Total sales of Spurgeon's books, adjusted for inflation to match today's dollar, were the equivalent of. $26,144,925.33 and yet Spurgeon died poor having funneled every penny possible back into these many ministries that he and Metropolitan Tabernacle so tirelessly maintained. God gave him a call and he ran his course and church like Paul each and every one of us has a, uh, has a has a course in life, a course, a calling, um, a path that each and every one of us has laid out for us. He tells Timothy in, in verse 5 to fulfill your ministry. Now, Paul knew that it wasn't Timothy's place to replace Paul, but that he had to follow his own course in obedience to God. And like Paul, there's a lot of us that We have to make a sacrifice in order to follow the path that God has created for us. And it begins with a surrendering of our will to his. We say, God, my life is yours. I offer it to you freely. I ask that your will be done, not mine. Make your desires my desires. But yes, oftentimes the call to obedience requires sacrifice. I think back, it was actually late 2006, nearly 13 years ago now, when it looked fairly certain that God was going to uproot us from our home of 15 years in Oklahoma City to bring us to a new ministry assignment, a pastorate in Lubbock, Texas. And even though we knew the calling was clear, that doesn't mean it was easy by any means in fact the transition was quite difficult but christy and i we sat the kids down and we said look kids god is calling us to something new but that means leaving our life here behind but we firmly believe that when god asks us to sacrifice something it's because he has something better Friends, to follow God, some of you have probably had to give up on a dream. But perhaps God has dreams for you that you haven't even conceived of yet. A better purpose, a better plan, a better outcome. But we've got to put our feet on the course that God has called us to. Now I want you to notice something else here in verse 6, not only the drink offering, but Paul talks about the departure occurring. The departure occurring. Paul's life has been spent in service to the gospel. And he writes here, for the time of my departure is close. Now it's an interesting choice of words. In Greek poetry, the word translated departure, it's metaphorically used to create the picture of a ship hoisting anchor. And loosening the mooring ropes and departing from one country to another country. Paul has been anchored to and moored to this world, but the the anchor, the, the ropes of this world have now been loosed. And Paul is about to set sail for the grandest of all ports, heaven itself. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul ran his course. But likewise, in fulfillment to our calling, we have to run our course. Not only do we run our course, here's the second thing I want you to notice from this passage, church. We run our course, but then we race toward completion. We race toward completion. Paul gives us a glorious testimony here in verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. He quickly glances back over his life. And three word pictures come to mind: the picture of a soldier, of a runner, and of a, a guardian, a steward, a protector of the faith, which we'll talk about in a minute. Let's look at Paul the soldier, though. He's lived his entire life since accepting Christ as a faithful soldier. I fought the good fight, he says. His words actually remind me of one of my favorite quotes. It's from the legendary Vince Lombardi, the uh, late Green Bay Packers coach, And and he actually wrote this one time. He says, I firmly believe that any man's finest hour, the greatest fulfillment of all that he holds dear, is that moment when he has worked his heart out at a good cause and lies exhausted on the field of battle, victorious. I have fought the good fight, Paul says. The Greek verb there is agonizomai. Agonizomai is actually a variation of the word agonia. It's the term we get our English word agony from. But it means to to struggle, to strive, to labor, to fight. Paul had responded to the call of Jesus on that Damascus road back in Acts chapter 9. He'd sacrificed all that he had been up to that point, all that he had to be a soldier who was committed to the mission of Jesus Christ. He would suffered through all of the threats and the scrapes and the attacks and the wars that were launched by the enemies of Christ, but he had fought the good fight. Not any fight. You know our English word for good, it's kind of it's vague, it's kind of nebulous. We can describe a lot of different things as good, except maybe Texas Tech's performance last night, but uh, the good fight. The Greek word there, it means a fight that was worthy, honorable, noble, excellent. He'd done his, his time. He'd stuck to the mission of Christ to the very end. And therefore, Paul could victoriously declare, I have fought the good fight And now he was being honorably discharged from his service as a soldier for the king. So we see Paul the soldier. We also see Paul the runner. He had run and finished the course of his life, completed the race. Back in verse 5 he tells Timothy to exercise self-discipline. He lived a disciplined and controlled life to the utmost, just like an Olympian athlete does took proper care of his body and mind. He focused on the course of his life and how he ran it. He avoided being distracted by the things of the world and of the flesh, which is why he could write in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way as to win the prize. He says in Philippians 3.14, I press on toward the goal. Your translation may say pursue or strive. I strive toward the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul the soldier, Paul the runner. We also see Paul the protector. Look at what he says. He says, I have kept the faith. Okay, what does it mean to keep faith? The faith. Does it mean to live in obedience to the Word of God, or does does it mean something even more than that? Well, the word there in the Greek text is taterika. Taterika, besides being a really fun word to pronounce, taterika is a verb. It's in the perfect tense. What does that mean to you and me? When it's in the perfect tense, it basically means it's a past action with present ongoing implications. I have fought the good fight in the past, but it has present and ongoing implications for Paul. The word teterica, it means to to guard, to keep, to watch, to observe. The lexicons say in this particular context, it more literally means to hold on to something so as not to to give it up or to lose it. Paul was a guardian of the gospel, a protector of the gospel. Of the faith, the Lord had entrusted proclamation of the gospel to Paul, and he had proven faithful to Terica, a protector. Edinburgh, Scotland, or if you're a Scotsman, it's Edinburgh. Uh, Edinburgh is a it's a city that has a rich sense of history. In Edinburgh, you'll find a lot of statues monuments that uh, remember great writers, poets, martyrs, leaders, philosophers. But probably the one statue that seems to have captured the world's attention is actually a statue of a little sky terrier dog. It's called the Greyfriars Bobby. And maybe you know the story of the Greyfriars Bobby. This dog was fiercely loyal to his master. But the master died. And when he died, the funeral procession went to, out to the Greyfriars Kirkyard, hence the term Greyfriars Bobby. The little dog follows the funeral procession to the cemetery, and there stands watch over his master, waiting for his master's return. People grew concerned about the dog. Some tried to take it home, give it a home. Invariably it would escape, return to the side of its master, and there it patiently waited watched over its master for 14 years. 14 years, keeping watch over its master until the day it died. Teterica. You see, the apostle Paul was both a proclaimer and a protector of the gospel till the day he died. Think about all of the sufferings He went through the the snake bites, the shipwrecks, the imprisonments, the, the beatings, all of the trials, the times that he came close to death. He could have dumped that faith that had been entrusted to him. He could have laid it aside. He could have ignored it. But he never did. He never abandoned the faith. And that's why he was able to write To the church at Galatia, let us not become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Galatians 6, 9. Church, understand what Paul is saying here. Stay the course. Give it your all. Strive for excellence in everything. But do not give up. Church, the application for us is clear and simple. Finish the race. Now, you may be thinking to yourself this morning, I can't. I don't know that I can do that. You might recall the name Derek Redmond. Derek Redmond was a sprinter. He was in Barcelona back in 1992 to represent Great Britain at the Olympic Games. Derek Redmond enjoyed a wonderful relationship with his father, Jim. And as he settled into the starting blocks for the beginning of a semifinal race, his thoughts naturally turned to his, his dad and all the support that Jim had provided him. A starter gun was fired. Derek got off to a clean start, and he was running well. When coming out of the backstretch and into the final curve, his right hamstring muscle tore. Derek crumpled to the track. A medical team rushed with a stretcher to, to his aid, but something inside Derek Redmond told him that he must finish the race. A hush enveloped the crowd as he struggled to climb to his feet and began to hobble torturously toward the finish line, every step racking his body with enormous pain. And suddenly... An older man eluded the Olympic security guards, jumped down onto the track, and ran to Derek's side. And as you may have already sus- uh, suspected, it, it was in fact his father, Jim. Derek began to sob as arm and arm. He and his father began to press toward the finish line. And just before he reached the finish, Jim let go. And Derek completed the course on his own. And a crowd of 65,000 people gave him a standing ovation. Does Derek Redmond's story remind you of anything? Reminds me of the words of the writer of Hebrews, who in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, said, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith but Eric you don't understand I'm no Spurgeon I'm not Lottie Moon I can't live the way that Paul did well you know what you're right. You can. not I mean, not in your own power and strength. You need assistance. You need a helper. Derek Redmond's helper was his father. But you know what? God, your father, has already given you a helper. He's given you his Holy Spirit to help you. Paul wrote in Ephesians 3.20 that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. No, alone, you can't reach the finish line. You will stumble, you will crash, and you will burn, figuratively speaking. But in the power of the Holy Spirit, as God works through you, as you rely on the power of the Holy Spirit, then yes, you can. Holocaust survivor Corey ten Boom once wrote this. She said, trying to do the Lord's work in your own strength is the most confusing, exhausting, and tedious of all work. But when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, then the ministry of Jesus just flows out of you. In addition to asking God, God, what, what do you want me to do? Maybe you need to be asking God Will you give me the strength to do it? Will you give me the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish it? Yeah, we need a helper. But you know what else we need? We need an aim, a vision, a goal, a target to set our sights on. Church, what do you have your sights set on today? Remember the words of the writer of Hebrews keeping our eyes on Jesus, the author the source, the perfecter of our faith. And remember the instruction that Paul has given us. We run the course. We race toward completion, understanding that it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. But then the third thing I want you to notice this morning from our text, we regard the crown. We regard the crown. Look at verse 8. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul was going to receive the crown of righteousness because he'd given his life to be a soldier for Christ, to run his course for Christ, to be a protector of the faith. An everlasting crown of righteousness. Wow, what a contrast with the fleeting fame and the the fading, deteriorating crowns and trophies that this world has to offer. Very quickly, two things I want you to notice about the crown. First and most obvious, it's a crown from a righteous Lord. A crown from a righteous Lord. This crown of righteousness is going to be given by the Lord, the perfect righteous judge, Paul calls calls him in verse 8. I mean, the only one who's fit to award this crown Since the Lord is perfect and the Lord is righteous, so Paul knew that the Lord would give him the perfect crown of righteousness in that glorious day to come. But not only is it a crown from a righteous Lord, it's also a crown for a redeemed lover. What do I mean by that? We'll look at the end of the verse. Not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. What kind of crown? Crown of righteousness. Who are the redeemed? Those who've been purchased by the blood of Jesus. Who is the lover? The one who looks for his coming, who loves the Lord's appearing. Who is it that loves the Lord's appearing? The person who loves the Lord himself. Who is it that loves the Lord himself? It's the person who truly believes in the Lord and the salvation he's provided. Who is the true believer? The one who has repented of his sins and by faith has trusted Christ for salvation and eternal life. And has committed his life to him. Who's the one who's truly committed to him? The one whose fruit is evident. The person who is fighting for the cause of Christ. Running the course that God has called him to run. And is a keeper of the faith. This Is the person who loves and looks for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the person who's going to receive the crown of righteousness. One of the amazing things about Paul is that he did not allow himself to get sidetracked by life's distractions and all of those things that compete for our attention. Not even the specter of his own imprisonment, his looming execution. In fact, he told the church at Colossae to set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Colossians 3, 2, and 3. So yeah, we need a helper. We need an aim. Like Paul, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And church, what a glorious day it will be when the Lord Jesus presents a crown to his faithful, a crown that we can then in turn in the ultimate act of worship lay at his feet. Paul told Timothy in verse 5, endure hardship, do the work, fulfill your ministry. The point, well, if you're willing to do the work, if you're willing to obediently run your course, and you can keep your triumphant Savior and the crown that He holds for you in sight, then you, like Paul, will have the perseverance to, to do as John 9, 4 says, to do the works of Him who sent me. The Holy Spirit will give you the power to do the good things He planned for us long ago, as Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10. What is God calling me to do? What is my strength? What is my aim? Speaking through Paul's last will and testament, the Lord is guiding you and me down the course toward a fruitful life of significance. This side of heaven, and ultimate victory on the other side. But I want you to think about this crown of righteousness for just a minute. It's a crown that a person cannot receive unless he's been made acceptable in the sight of God. No person can ever be accepted by God unless he's covered with righteousness and made perfect. Why? Because God is perfect and only perfection can live in the presence of God. Well, here's the problem with that. Nothing that you and I can ever do in this life will achieve perfection. There's nothing that we can do to earn salvation, to somehow earn a spot on God's roster. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 that there is none righteous, not even one. A few verses later he says in verse 23 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 64 verse 6, he Describes our righteousness as filthy rags in the sight of God. The only way a person can ever become acceptable to God is by receiving, by faith, the gift of salvation provided by Christ's atoning death on the cross. Atoning means he did it in our place, he paid the price for us. We owed a debt we couldn't pay, he paid a debt he didn't owe. That's why Paul wrote in Romans 5, 8, that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The wages of sin is death, he wrote in Romans 6, 23. The wages, the price, the penalty is death. Somebody had to die for our sins. But he goes on to say that the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 10, 13, Paul says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Are you ready to call upon him? Say, God, I acknowledge I'm imperfect. I know I'm a sinner, and I repent. I turn away from that sin, and I am trusting Jesus for salvation and eternal life. I commit my life to you. Do you want to know significance in this life and victory in the next life? Then I invite you to say yes to him today. Let's pray together. God, for your goodness, we thank you. Father, thank you that while we were still sinners, Christ chose to die for us. You knew that we would never be able to achieve perfection, but you already had a plan for us. We thank you for the salvation that's provided for us in Jesus Christ. But God, I lift up those people in the room today who have never ever come to that, that crucial moment where they've made the conscious choice to say, yes, yes, I know I'm a sinner. Yes, I ask you to forgive me. I'm entrusting my heart and life to you. I'm following you. I pray for those people right now, God, that your Holy Spirit would speak to them, convict them, draw them, Lord, that they would be transformed today for your glory. God, I pray for Christians who need to make a course correction, who perhaps are not walking in obedience to your calling, to what you've been telling them to do. They've been trying to do it their way instead of your way, and I pray that you would speak to their hearts. God, I pray for people who are here today who are just hurting and need to lay all of their hurts and their pain at your feet. God, we ask for your spirit to move in a powerful way in these moments to follow. We thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. Join us again next week when Dr. David Wilson presents his next sermon in the series, What Do You Say? We pray you have a wonderful week.